0: I'm Leslie Vinjimori. I'm co-director of the Center for the International Politics of Conflict Rights and Justice here at SOAS. And I am extremely delighted and we are all honored to have Dr. Lisa Anderson with us this evening. Uh, Lisa Anderson is currently at Columbia University as a professor emeritus. She was, until very recently, the president of the American University, in Cairo from 2011 to 2016. And prior to that, Provost for two years. Before you moved across to Cairo, Lisa, you were also in a leadership role as Dean of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. And of course, I know you from your time as head of the political science department. Uh, So it, it really is an honor to have you here this evening to speak about the right to be wrong, academic freedom social science, and public policy in the Arab world. So welcome to SOAS. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Tell us, what is the right to be wrong?
1: Well, I think we often make the case for academic freedom in terms of freedoms, that we ought to be able to do things and we ought to be able to um, sort of do whatever we want as academics. And I think for many people, that doesn't describe or capture why that's important. It seems like an entitlement. We think we're academics and therefore we have the right to do what we want. And in fact, scientific research is predicated on the confidence to take risks, to challenge authority, to think about whether the conventional wisdom is right or not. And if you don't feel confident that you have the right to be wrong, to make an argument that might be proven incorrect, might turn out to be overturned eventually. That's how scientific research, that's how education works. So it's not an entitlement. It's built into the practice of what we do as encouraging inquiry. And we encourage inquiry on the part of our students, and we do as researchers. And we can't do that, and we can't be successful as an academic community unless we feel that we can all, from our students to ourselves as established researchers, take the risk that we might be wrong. And I think to understand that that's what this freedom is about. It's not about freedom simply to be untrammeled, but it's actually to do something that's even
0: more important so academic freedom as you've as you've described it and as the right seems to be on on the one hand fairly uncontentious or it should be uncontentious and yet of course you have worked at the cutting edge really of that of that nexus between the public sphere and the academy for several decades So presumably part of the problem is when there's something really at stake. So academics have become much more engaged in the public sphere during the time, during the course of your career. And certainly you've seen this in your leadership roles. Is there a threat to academic freedom? How have you experienced the change over the course of the last two decades?
1: Well, I think there was a time in the academy when there was a, a sort of conceit that what you did in the academy had only limited impact in the world. It was this sort of ivory tower and you were separated and you could, whether you did social science or whether you did natural science or whether you were in the humanities, um, it wasn't going to have that much of a immediate impact in the policy world, for example. And over the course of time, I think both the academic on the academic side and on the policy side, that seemed to be unsatisfying. And so, no, what academics do should have an impact and should make a difference in the world. And I think both the academic world thinks that and the policy world and larger, you know, sort of attentive public. But that means that this issue of whether you're right or wrong becomes very contentious. It becomes, are you supporting a particular partisan position if you make a particular kind of um, argument about how poverty can be alleviated or how education policy should be managed or whatever your work impinges on, it instantly begins to seem as if it has a partisan quality to it. And that can be in terms of domestic politics in any given place, um, or it can seem to be um a part of a sort of global debates about the way the world should look and so forth, that becomes very contentious. And one of the reactions of people who are in partisan or policy debates is to try and counter that not through a sort of, if you will, scientific debate, but really more of a partisan political debate of undermining the position of the alternative party or the alternative position. So I think academics have found themselves in these kinds of um, contentious politics much more than they expected to uh, in the last 25 or 30 years, um, and much less comfortable with where they think the impact that they should have belongs, how they should participate in these debates. Uh, I think a lot of people have been a surprise to be caught up in partisan politics. They thought they were simply, you know, proposing policy positions. And then that turns out to have become politicized. So I think it has changed. And I think it has become difficult um, for academics whose work has policy implications to know exactly how to interact with a world of
0: partisan politics. Is self-censorship an increased problem? Are academics more wary and more cautious than they used to be in your experience? Those had, who move in and out yeah. of the academy?
1: I think they're... Actually, it's interesting. I think it's gone perhaps in, in to the extremes on both ends. So people who want to have a particular kind of policy influence and think of themselves as part of a policy elite probably do censor themselves and are probably less critical um, than they would be if they didn't think they had an opportunity to have an impact. Um, but there's also a group of people who are who have become almost congenitally oppositional um and who use their position in the academy as a um place where they can simply object to anything because they object to the system as a whole, because, but I don't think they censor themselves. On the contrary, they sort of look for opportunities to be provocative. But in either case, it isn't necessarily the most healthy way to approach what the practice of research, academic research, can contribute to
0: human welfare. And what about, I know one thing that you've spoken about a lot is, is the location of conversations and and the, the the prospect that the university, in a sense, can be a, a safe space not only for scholars, but also for practitioners and and, and those in the in the world of public policy. Um, is that has that continued to be the case throughout, say, the last decade? Have you experienced that? Do people come to the university to have conversations happily? Um, and and sense that they also have a degree of freedom that they might not have if they were speaking even at an NGO or certainly in 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 the formal um, offices of state.
1: Not as much as you might hope. Um, and again, I think this is why being able to characterize the special um, the special meaning of academic freedom is important. It's not simply free expression. it is, There is free expression, and that's an important right as well. But within this safe space and within this um, domain in which we are obliged to be self-critical, critical critical of the, you know, or professors, critical of the prevailing wisdom, so forth and so on, we need to be able to say that is a place where you have the right to be wrong. Whereas in, in simply free expression is not necessarily going to capture that. So I think the more the academy as a whole can make the case for why it is so important that there be exposure to noxious ideas and unconventional wisdom and so forth, that's where new ideas are generated and cultivated and fostered. And if the world needs anything now, it's new ideas. So people need to feel there is a place where that can happen. And I don't think that there is as much confidence both within the academy and out that that's the case now.
0: In your role, as a, I like to think of you as a leader of scholars. You've certainly been uh you found yourself in contexts that you probably didn't expect to find yourself in. As the dean of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, you were there, of course, through the 9/11 attacks, and and experienced firsthand what it meant to be a university in a very difficult political environment. Um, how what was that like? How how did your the scholars that you were that you were pr- protecting their academic freedoms. How did they experience this? these issues of academic freedom?
1: Well, I think New York City and Columbia um, and the United States in general um, is probably more accustomed and has better institutions to ensure public debate can take place in a relatively safe environment. That said... I think the experience of 9 11 and the experience of the American reaction to 9 11, which was a sort of hyper nationalist, very wounded sense of having been attacked and looking for who these enemies must have been and where they came from and how we were to understand ways to react to that, um, did mean that. There wasn't the sense of, uh, perhaps it was even complacency that people could say what they wanted and it wouldn't alarm anyone. Suddenly there was a sense of alarm about academic research. I think the most important thing that came out of that experience was my, at least for me, being um, renewed in my conviction that exposure to ideas that are not the ideas that you were born with, not the ideas that you grew up with, not the ideas that you read in, noxious ideas, new ideas, obnoxious, all sorts of... It's absolutely essential. There is no way we will ever understand the extent of thinking in the world if we don't expose ourselves to ideas that we think may be a little dangerous, maybe a little... Um, alarming or, as I say, um, provocative, I think that's what we as academics are for. Um, That wasn't easy. A lot of people, when they're anxious, a lot of people, when they're feeling alarmed, don't want to be exposed to new ideas. They want to be reassured that the way they live and what they do is right. So there's a tension in that, but I think it's one of the most important things a university can do.
0: So in America, we like to say out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, you left for Cairo, and you were provost at the American University of Cairo and and rather rapidly selected to be the president of the American University of Cairo. And I do recall that we were all looking forward to learning about your inaugural, which didn't take place because instead you found yourself um, as a leader of a university in the context of the Arab Spring and of Tahrir Square, and quite an extraordinary time, presumably of uncertainty and and perhaps of optimism, but, but a time when I would imagine that questions of academic freedom and that relationship between scholars and the public sphere and of their freedoms must have been one that you were constantly negotiating. What was it like in February?
1: Well, let me just start with an observation that I hadn't really noticed until um, one of my colleagues um, at one of the receptions for me as I was retiring from the position pointed out that I was the first and very likely the last president of the American University in Cairo to have served under four presidents of the republic. <laughs> um yes there were phases there were certainly phases um it was a it was an absolutely fascinating time because for many people in Egypt um they had grown up under 30 years of the same president and they had grown accustomed to not being interested in the public sphere there was not very much to pay attention to um Nobody watched the nightly news because it was exactly the same as it was the day before, and it would be exactly the same the next day. So the measure of uncertainty and um, the demands that were made on people when they realized that they had to start thinking about their role in political life were really quite extraordinary. And I would say that you know, I, and in fact, I used to say when I was in Cairo, that suddenly there were 80 million political scientists, they wanted to understand how politics worked. So the whole country was completely caught up with some of the, you know, basic things of, you know, what do we think about whether Mubarak should be stepping down or not maybe this is and I knew you know families that were divided and you know it, when he made his announcement saying that he was going to be leave, leaving office um half the country was seem to be in Tahrir Square but lots of people told me that their wives were at home crying because he thought he was they thought he was just an old man and it was really mean and why so the idea that people had to think in political terms was a novelty for many many people
0: Did they look to you, I don't just mean you yourself, but you and the university to inform them? So AUC as an institution just began, just opened
1: itself up and to its own, for its own students as well as for a general public. And one of the things that I thought was really quite gratifying was, um, so Mubarak stepped down on February 11th and uh, we resumed operations on February 13th. And we were the only educational ins- institution operating in Egypt for six weeks. Um, and everybody wondered how we could do that. And I said, well, we had had 18 days to plan how we would reopen. So when we were ready, we were ready. It's a little like mm-hmm. shooting a rocket off. You know, you're all ready. And you check the weather report. If it's OK, you launch. So we were ready to launch. But this was something that also I drew on my experience in during 9-11 in New York, It was very important just to get back together. Everybody had been staying at home or were in Tahrir Square. It was a very, very uh, disorienting experience. And I thought it was important both in New York, you know, on the 12th of September and immediately after um, Mubarak left office, to be able to get back together and talk about it. I mean, part of an education is simply the debate in class and in the hallways and thinking about what's happening and so forth and so on. So if we got people together to tell you the truth, of course, in both cases, the curriculum sort of went out the window for a little (laughs) while. But the education was enormously enhanced.
0: But presumably impaired by the Internet being heavily policed and controlled and at some point shut down it
1: was shut down for about three days during the 18 days by the time we resumed it was back up and running and so forth and i think um i think now in much of the region uh the internet is actually relatively easily accessible because governments are seeing it more as a mechanism for surveillance so they're not inhibiting access to it um they're just watching what you're doing which is a different thing it was easy to operate it then. And so we had the provost of the day uh, authorized pop-up courses and said, you want to teach something about the revolution? Teach something about the revolution. So the political science department had new courses and the history department had new courses. And these courses were on things like the jokes of Tahrir Square, or, you know, in other words, the the language that people used or the way people organized or comparisons to other revolutionary movements and so forth and so on. And they actually produced some books. But what was really interesting is the authority changed there. So you have a regular course. You have the, the you know, faculty member has a syllabus, so forth and so on. The students read it. Much of the work that was being assigned... In these courses were blog posts written by students in the course so the sense of collective learning and the faculty were learning the students was learning it was a fabulous experience of realizing that this flipped classroom and all the kinds of things that people talk about in you know higher ed pedagogy happened it just happened naturally because everybody was learning and that experience will stay with me and I think honestly will stay with the university forever because even as things began to settle down at the university and um, we began to have more routinized public forums on different electoral systems. And so this is what I mean about everybody was a political scientist. Everybody in Egypt wanted to know the difference between, you know, single-member districts and proportional representation, the technicalities of electoral politics and so forth, campaign management and so forth, because, you know, there were several parliaments during the last five years, there were several presidential um, elections and so forth and so on. And everybody wanted to know how this was supposed to work. I think one of the things that I took away from that was there is a relatively, if you will, natural appetite for knowledge and information on the part of the human person. Um, But when you learn that in a concentrated way, in a context like this so for 30 years you didn't pay any attention and all of a sudden you want to learn everything overnight it's exhausting mm-hmm. and one of the things that was fascinating about living in Egypt was the extent to which you could see people just collectively getting really tired mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't that they didn't care and it wasn't and they continue uh, to to this day I think they care about politics in a way that they hadn't ever before but it was really exhausting.
0: But the, it, this is a it's sort of a wonderful picture, right, that you're, that you're sharing with us of the concern and the engagement and the collective and the sort of bottom-up looking for ideas and discussion. But, of course, the story, you know, how, what we see when we're sitting in Europe or in the United States and what we, how we think about Egypt is very, very different. When we, we hear about the shrinking space for civil society, the attack on human rights and human rights workers – um, all sorts of things that that you're very well aware of. What was your experience at the university? The the context must have had a, a severe impact, presumably, on the freedoms that, that you're discussing this evening. Well, one of the
1: things that we always felt was important is that AUC is a model institution. It's a model institution in Egypt. Um, as a liberal arts university, as a place where these kinds of Values are embedded in the way we think about teaching, um, the way we think about research. So it is true that in the first few years after um, the 25th of January, we had all sorts of very interesting people come and speak on campus. And virtually all of the presidential candidates came to speak on campus. It was the first time in 7,000 years that it ever happened in Egypt because, of course, politics didn't happen on campuses. Mm -hmm. So we had, as if it was American elections, you know, John McCain spoke at, Mm -hmm. you know, University of whatever it was. And so we said, Muhammad al Baradai can come and speak at AUC and so forth. So we had quite a lot of fun sort of modeling how you can think about Politics on a campus that are not contentious partisan politics that mm-hmm. lead to, um, you know, violence on campus or the kinds of things that people are very concerned about, that this is a space where political discussions can be had in a civil and interesting way. Over the course of time, it is true that I think there was more and more anxiety about whether. That was possible in a context where there was as much contention about the Morsi government and then about the Sisi government as there was in Egypt. Um, But we really continue to say that the those kinds of debates are appropriate debates in an academic context. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's important to make the case for why academic freedom is so important. Because you can Understand, if not agree with, the concerns of a government facing what it believes to be um, th- threats to the state. That it will not be as, you know, generous and comfortable with free expression in the street and so forth and so on. Um, I'm not sure. I I do believe that many times those kinds of things are actually covers for simply partisan repression and of dissent that you don't like. But let's assume for the sake of argument that there is a reason to be concerned, that there are people who are trying to overthrow the state, and if not the regime, and that a government will respond to what it sees as those kinds of existential threats. That should not, in my estimation, impinge on the academic freedom to debate issues of public moment on a campus and in an academic community. And that's one of the reasons why I think this right to be wrong is so important. Because if you can't make that case in a plausible way to a government, whether it's the UK government or the Egyptian government or anyone, then the same kinds of sense of you're harboring dangerous things there and you have to stop will be attacks on academic freedom. And I think What we did at AUC was to say, no, we will continue to debate these kinds of things. We will, so for example, the example I often use is after Morsi was deposed, and there was a lot of discussion about, and CC was very, very popular at that point. And so the um, prohibition on insulting the president, which had always been on the books, sort of revived and people were being um, prosecuted for insulting the president. So our student affairs staff at AUC was concerned that our students, who are students, would insult the president of the republic and that that would reflect badly on the institution. Mm. So I got everybody in student affairs together and I said, look, we're a law-abiding institution. So if there is a law against insulting the president of the republic, you should certainly not encourage our students to do that. That said, there is no law against insulting the president of the university (laughs) and everybody reacted the way you did every there was a gasp in the room and then I but I said and the point is that if they need to debate things about the university so and of course they took advantage of it and they weren't always kind to the president of the university I must say but to, to simply model that this is the way it's supposed to work and it can work in a it can be productive it can work you know People can say things that are not particularly flattering about the president of the university, but it's a, in a debate about tuition policy, or it's in a debate about things that matter to the community, and it can happen in a way that is civil, respectful, and ultimately productive.
0: And and was AUC in a privileged position as compared to other Absolutely. universities in Egypt? Privileged in two ways. We operate
1: AUC operates in under a protocol. With the Egyptian government that gives us privileges that other universities don't. And it grew out of the fact that in the 1960s, the Nasser government was going to nationalize AUC. That didn't happen, but there was a protocol that designed a place for the university. Um, And in some respects, that permitted us to do things since we're the protocol, for example, um, mandates a certain number of American faculty. Um, and certain kinds of protocols about how um, faculty recruited and so forth and so on that are very different from the national universities in Egypt. Um, In the last 20 years, a number of other private universities have appeared in Egypt, but we still represent the sort of, um, certainly the oldest. In fact, the third oldest university in Egypt, there is Al-Azhar and Cairo University, which is 10 years older than AUC and then AUC. So, um, we've been there for a long time. But the other reason we're privileged is that um, dur- it, is a, it is a university that has produced some of the most important people in the country. Mm. And I often said that we, in these, this period of four presidents, um, and many, many prime ministers <laughs> and field marshals and so forth, we had either a parent, a faculty member, or an alum in every government. And that meant that people understood that we were, in in some fundamental way, not partisan. We wanted Egypt to succeed. We wanted to be contributing to public policy debates. We wanted to be able to be of service to the country. And we didn't really say there was only one way to do that. So in that sense as well, the fact that we were privileged illustrated our argument about why
0: operating the way we do is important. Are you optimistic about the future of academic freedoms in Egypt? I actually think we're in a
1: period in the world um, where there's so many moving pieces in the way public policy is made and where it's made and um, how university educations are funded and so forth, that I think we will see challenges to, if not attacks on academic freedom everywhere. So I'm not less optimistic about Egypt than anywhere else, but I do think that collectively we need to be thinking about how we make the case to skeptics about why academic freedom is important or why the academic enterprise is important and I think some of that we see in particularly in North America and Europe the attacks are really coming from why should we be paying for this um, so some of it is really you know why should we be paying for people to um, be wrong? why should we put up with the uh, partisan politics that may arise so I think around the world there really is a sense of um, a failure to appreciate the project that the academy represents and it is you know the creation and dissemination and preservation of knowledge and that means research and it means education teaching the next generation's what we now know and how they themselves will contribute to the expansion of knowledge. Those things are very important, and I think they tend to get lost in a world where there are all of these pressures on how things are going to be financed and who's going to pay for government services and who's going to pay for education and whether we can get jobs for our graduates and whether we're going to slide into civil war, all of those kinds of pressures mean that this seems like it's a luxury, and of course it's not. But that's why we have to make the case for it.
0: It's it's very important, I think, for all of us at SOAS to hear you speak about this. The UK is going through plenty of its own debates, as you know, about prevent and about academic freedom. Um, And and many academics here at SOAS have felt these issues very personally in their own research. Uh, It is... An absolute honor to have you here, Lisa. We're looking forward to your lecture this evening that will also be recorded. So you can tune back in to listen to Professor Anderson later this evening. But thank you very much, Lisa, and I hope that you'll come back to SOAS frequently.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.